it's July 1982. This is episode 24 of the Player Missile Podcast, and I'm Rob McMullen. It's been a while again. Seems like I've said that for a while. Again. A lot's been happening since the last episode. This whole pandemic thing started, and is still going. Which means a lot of things have changed. I used to go to Kansas Fest and some other gatherings, and of course Kansas Fest, like everything else, was virtual this year. And while it was fun, and it was good to see all the presentations, it just wasn't the same as going to the you know, going to Rockhurst University and hanging out in the dorms and eating, you know, marginal food, but seeing all the presentations in person and, and talking to people, um, it's not the same as, as what you get over the virtual, like, Zoom meetings, as I'm sure any of you with kids know, because school has been Zoom school, and it's terrible. You know, we'll get through it, and my kids are not having a lot of fun. I think they're learning, I don't know, 25% of what they might, but we'll all get through it. And hopefully, Kansas Fest and stuff will be back. School will be back soon, and we won't be relegated to only virtual stuff. In terms of virtual things that were actually fun, Bill Lang set up some Atari parties. I was able to attend one, virtually, of course. And I showed off a little bit of Omnivore, and got to see a lot of progress on other stuff, like the FujiNet project, which is this sort of amazing network device that you can use to do, among other things, boot floppy disks over the network. So it's attached to the SIO port, and it allows you to do... More stuff than I'm able to describe here. It's it's all over Atari Age. There's links everywhere. I'll put some links in the show notes. But it's got a lot of people very excited. Other Atari things that have been keeping people busy? Bill Kendrick and Case Abbott's put together the Atari 8-bit bot Twitter page, where you can tweet some code to this Twitter account, and it will run in the background in an Atari emulator your code, and it'll put the results back up. It's an interesting process. They sort of described how they did it. They run... Um, the Atari 800 emulator in, a, I think, on a Raspberry Pi, and it pings Twitter every couple minutes, finds out new tweets, then sets up this virtual uh, screen, like the X frame buffer, I think it's using. So it draws the stuff on this frame buffer, they capture it, put it into a movie, and post it on the bot. So it's all using, like, Twitter APIs and stuff. So you should check that out. It's a Atari 8-bit bot on Twitter. I'll include another link in the show notes to that. Speaking of K, we've got another contribution from him on this episode, the uh, APX Summer Catalog for 1982. And also speaking of him, he and Carrington Vanston just completed their sort of circuit through the Infocom text adventures. And the most recent episode they just released was their sort of victory lap, where they go over all the episodes that they've done and all the games they've played. And so that's a really great podcast. It was like three and a half years they said it took him to play all those games. So if you haven't listened to Eaten by a Groove, you definitely should check that out. It's right up our alley. All right, let's talk some magazines. Of the big four, my big four are analog, antic, compute, and creative computing. There's only compute and creative computing this time. Analog is still quarterly, and antic is, what, every other month, I think, at this point. Antic goes monthly in 1983 in April, but analog doesn't go monthly until the beginning of 1984. Compute's been monthly since 1981, January 1981, and creative computing's been monthly since as far back as I've tracking it, which is uh, 1979. So those four of the magazines I'll be covering in detail, and then the rest will be kind of, you know, cursory summaries, um, especially Byte. I have a lot of Byte magazines, you know, physical copies, but they're just so big and so sparse. You know, it's half ads, as I've complained about before. And the Atari info is really getting slim at this point. And you'll see at this episode, but there's not a whole lot to talk about in Byte magazine this time. So let me pull up the compute here and let's get started. This is the compute for July 1982. It says issue 26, volume 4, number 7. Two bucks fifty here in the US. One pound 85 in the UK. Compute, the journal for progressive computing, TM. At the top it says IRA planner, a financial planning tool for Radio Shock, Color Computer, Atari, Apple, Pet CBM, Vic, 
and OSI. It's got its usually mostly white background, and then it's got and sort of the top third, it's got a sort of a prospector guy, cartoon-like holding a pickaxe and salivating over chunks of gold that have been dug out of this tunnel. Below that, there's a Mona Lisa that kind of fades into a pixelated background. There's a VIC-20 and a bubble off to the right of that, and then a couple floppy disks with apples in the center instead of a, the circular hole. It says Gold Rush, action game for Atari and VIC, Atari Video Graphics, an in-depth tutorial, an Apple DOS changer, protect your discs from accidental erasure. Not sure exactly what that means. Maybe, I don't know, maybe we'll find out. And some Commodore stuff. An overview of the VIC-20 computer. At the bottom it says, reviews, Caverns of Mars for Atari. Yay. Two VIC-20 games. Boo. And some CPM stuff that we'll probably skip. There's a couple ads before the table of contents. The Percom. I don't, can't remember if I actually saw any Percom discs in the wild disk drives, but they certainly were advertised a lot. And at the table of contents, We've got those features from the front cover. There's a couple Atari-specific stuff. There's a review of Caverns of Mars they list. There's the Insight Atari column by Bill Wilkinson. We'll get to that. There's something called a Micro-DOS. There's an article titled Atari Video Graphics in the New GTIA. There's Atari Variable Table Refresh and Program Backup. And in the multiple computer category that we'll probably look at, well, there's a Machine Language First Steps column that we've looked at before. And I'll probably look at that VIC-20 article just to see kind of what, what that's all about. In the editor's notes by Robert Locke and Tom Half Halfhill, I guess Halfhill, they br- they briefly mentioned the Chicago Consumer Electronics Show and the National Computer Conference in Houston, where they list a bunch of Commodore stuff. And so here's a picture of the Commodore 64 coming down the pike. It said they heard that Atari was reducing the price of the 400 to the Atari 400 to 349. I guess maybe the feeling the future pressure of the Commodore 64 being re- introduced. I think at 599. So yep, the bad boy C64 is imminent. As I continue on here, there's an ad for Synapse Software. This the same ad was common in, in these magazines for the last, you know, around this time, where they advertised Protector, Slime, Chicken, and Nautilus. I remember having Nautilus and Protector pirated, but I never had Slime and Chicken, so maybe I should check those out. Another game that I also had pirated, Pool 1.5. It was drawn in high res, if I remember, and artifacting colors. There's a monthly column, Computers in Society by David Thornburg. Computer literacy, who needs it, is one of the headings. Yeah, you might in the future. There's another ad for a game called Rear Guard by Adventure International, which I don't remember ever playing or seeing as a pirated copy. I should keep a list of all these. Yeah, games I've never seen would be a good topic for the podcast. Here's the game Gold Rush by Joseph Weber, Rapid City, South Dakota. Looks like it was designed on the VIC-20 and then ported to the Atari. It's in basic, using in, on the Atari, it's using graphics mode 1. A little note says, a game simulates the appearance of the VIC version by using a custom character set in graphics mode 1. No screenshot, though. And you know how I feel about games typing in stuff without a screenshot. Not gonna do it. There's the IRA planner that was advertised. I think I'll be typing that in either. Oh, gosh, it's very short, too. It's like 40 lines of basic. <laughs> Essentially, it's just an interest calculator. And pardon me, i got to get better about reading the authors of these. This, the IRA Planner was written by Richard and Betty Guyvan of Richmond, Kentucky. And next is a game uh, called Maze Race by Mike Peterson of Cheyenne, Wyoming. And in it said he was impressed by the maze algorithm that appeared in Compute's December 81 issue. And he had an idea for a program that incorporated that algorithm. So it looks like, again, no screenshot, but some sort of maze running game. Yeah, screenshots, people. There's an article by Leo Scanlon, test RAM for bad bits non-destructively, because, yeah, you wouldn't want to test them for them destructively, because that would be bad on your computer. 
I really wonder how much of a problem this was. I don't remember ever having bad RAM, but I suppose for the one time when you did have bad RAM, it would be good to have a program that could test for it. So it's a fairly long program, and it comes with some explanations about like bit operations and how you would test for a bit being flipped. It's written in assembly language, although I can't see where it says what system it's written for, but since everything in computers is for 6502, you could modify this. Oh, here it is. Looks like in the comments, Barry, it looks like it's the AIM-65, but yeah, obviously it could be repurposed with an assembler to work on the Atari. It's an article, Recursive Basic Subroutines by Earl Wuchter of, holy cow, Katasakawa, Katasakwa, Pennsylvania? Pete, my Pennsylvania listener, maybe you can tell me how to pronounce that correctly. Yeah, Recursive Basic Subroutines. I'm not sure that Atari Basic could actually do recursive subroutines. It claims to. It says here it supports Atari Basic. There's a column on logo. Then I'll skip, because I don't really know logo, nor care about it particularly. There's screen graphics. How to move and rotate objects on screen. This is like rotations. This is uh, Ian Paul from Rochester, New York. So it tells about sines and cosines and how to rotate objects. Looks like it's written for the pet, but it's got notes for Atari users. Here's an article by Fred Ignazio, the associate editor. We know him from his work. Uh, where? I'm blanking. And pause while I look up stuff. And it's from here and lots of other books that he wrote. So yeah, there's an interview that uh, Kay did with him years ago now, but I'll include a link to that in the show notes. That's uh, in the Antic podcast feed. And here we come to an article with a problematic title, Teaching Johnny to Program, by Glenn Kiernan, Palo Alto, California. Why isn't it teaching Jane to program, Glenn? Why isn't it just teaching kids to program? Although perhaps after my reactionary interpretation of that, he is actually arguing on the same side as me in that he's like railing against this imaginary book called Why Johnny Can't Program that he thinks claiming logo is the only proper approach. He's talking about about the book, not what he recommends, I don't think. It seems to be reading this is that he, yeah, is not arguing that there's one particular language that kids should learn, and he's not arguing against logo either. I think he's saying, you know, kids can learn whatever they want. Yeah, a quote in here, he says, I believe the critical factor in whether learning to program facilitates general thinking skills is not which language is taught, but whether the teaching encourages careful task analysis, problem solving, and testing. He says, however, Logo does have some advantages over basics since it encourages modular programming. It also encourages careful analysis of problems and good programming practices. Well, I can't argue with that because basic is pretty, yeah, spaghettified. Logo itself, I'm not sold on Logo personally, but I don't have a lot of experience in it just knowing what I, what little I know. And of course, nowadays, there's many other choices, but back then, every computer had some sort of basic. We flip through a bunch of Commodore and Apple stuff that's not super interesting. Then we find uh, this micro-DOS that was advertised in the, on the cover. So basically, the upshot is, uh, would you like to eliminate the need for dupe.sys and mem.save on most of your disks? So save yourself 88 sectors in 75 seconds. So this is micro-DOS by Dennis Keithley from Webster, Texas. So it says micro-DOS is a machine language program in page 6 of RAM that gives you a sort of a, a selection of a, sm- a small number of DOS functions, lock, unlock, delete, rename, format, menu, load dupe.sys, and return to basic. Well, that seems pretty useful. You can cram all that in, in one page. Obviously, in one page, it's pretty terse, so it, the prompts are like FN question mark for file name. Here's the article, Wither Vic by Jim Butterfield, and talking about the past, present, and predicted future of the Vic. And so this is as the Commodore 64 is about to really get released. I think officially it's released in August. I don't know that it gets sufficient quantities till later on in the in the year and next year. But his conclusion is that, you know, can the VIC-20 survive? And he thinks yes. 
I mean, clearly we know that it doesn't much longer because the Commodore 64 just stomps all over it. He thinks because the Commodore 64 is twice the price that the VIC will still have some room, but because it's incompatible with the Commodore 64, it really has no upgrade path. And, you know, it starts, it's like 3K of memory initially. And he, he says you can expand it from the tiny 3K to the huge 16K with a motherboard expansion soon promised to expand it to a full 32K. But I think there's some rose-colored glasses from a VIC fan going on here because, you know, the it doesn't have a 40-column screen even. I don't know. At this point, you can't know the future. And, you know, this is 300 bucks in the... C64 is going to be, you know, 600 bucks. But still, I have a hard time believing that people thought the VIC-20 would last for much longer. I'll just take a quick look at this Apple DOS changer since I mentioned it on the, on the cover page. It's uh, apparently a way to rename the DOS commands so that it says, like, students in your computer lab won't try to mess up your disks by typing init or something. The next article is Atari Video Graphics and the New GTIA by Craig Chamberlain of Birmingham, Michigan. It says the GTIA is an exciting new graphics chip now being shipped in Atari 400-800 computers. Among its special features are 16 color mode with resolution 8 times better than Apple's and the capability of generating 256 color variations. And it talks about the three new graphics modes. It says that a three-page article that kind of talks a little bit about Antic and CTIA and sort of the division of labor between the two chips. And then it talks more about the new modes in GTIA, like uh, 9, 10, and 11, the 80 pixel by 192 pixel modes. It has a little background about the electron beam and how it works. Um, talks about the color clock. Let's see his definition of a color clock. It says the amount of time the computer needs in order to sufficiently change the frequency of the signal it generates so as to produce a different color. In my tutorial on display list interrupts that I wrote it's on, on the Player Missile website, I described it as... The smallest portion of a scanline that can be displayed with an arbitrary color. But he spends the second page here of the article talking about the color clocks, the scanlines, the sort of frame synchronization of all those, and talks about the DMA control register of the Antic that controls the width of the playfield. Mentions display lists a little bit, and on the third page talks about how Antic sort of integrates all the different kinds of modes into the display. So there's really not a whole lot here that's specific about the GTIA. They mention a few times the uh, number of colors, 128 colors in the CTIA and 256 in the GTIA, and only that brief mention of graphics modes 9, 10, and 11, basic graphics modes, that is. So yeah, not, not strictly a, a detailed summary of the GTIA, but a good summary of both Antic and the GTIA and how they work together. Next, we move past a bunch of Commodore, PET, and VIC stuff. They have a whole VIC memory map, which is really pretty detailed. It's, what, four pages of all the um, operating system registers. Next is the Part 3 Machine Language First Steps article by Jim Butterfield. And I guess I forgot, it looks like this must be for the pet, because they don't say anywhere, but it's using some like operating system uh, JSRs that I don't recognize. It's only like a page and a half, so yeah, I guess that's not ter terribly useful. I'd sort of, yeah, in another reference as to how long it's been since I recorded, I thought, I remembered it being more instructive or useful, but this one is not super terribly interesting. There's the Atari Variable Table Refresh and Backup Program by John Harding of Rochester, New York. And they're little basic utilities. So it's like a couple lines that you sort of attach on the end of your program. And then you go to this line at that of that's part of this listing, and it automatically saves a copy on disk and then rereads the program to sort of clear the variable name table. I sort of distantly recall there's like there's if you have a large program, then the variable name table can get corrupted or overrun or something. I sort of remember vaguely that there was a problem with, it, with that. And so this, I guess, clears out the, the program you've been working on, reloads it, and therefore it has it starts with a clean variable name table. 
I have to give super props to his uh, forward thinking. The author said this procedure provides father-son, or in parentheses, mother-daughter backup. So, yeah, I like it that we aren't always assuming that it's all male-type peoples doing all the computer coding. I thought there's an article on the, the VIC chip, the 6560 video interface chip. So that's used in the VIC-20. The VIC-2 chip is the one that's used in the Commodore 64 that has all the sprites and stuff. It implies that the VIC chip was available from Moss Technologies because, well, they were the designers of it, that it could be used by other people, not just Commodore. But I don't know if that's true or not. I've never heard of any other machine other than the VIC-20 using the VIC chip. Here's the Inside Atari column by Bill Wilkinson of Optimized System Software, Cupertino, California. He answers a few letters and then has his Inside Atari Basic Part 6. He mentions that last time they talked about uh, string and array manipulation and how you can use that to copy stuff on the screen. And also then mentions that you can use that for player missile graphics because the string manipulation in um, Atari Basic is fast. Talks a little bit about record management, like the get and put commands, the input number to get something off a particular like file, I guess. I don't remember the input commands very well. After that, we skip through a few sections on the OSI, and then we get to a review of Caverns of Mars by Charles Brannan. This is one of the first programs I saw back at a library. They had some Atari set up when I was, I don't know how old it was, before I had my machine. I saw Caverns of Mars and was just amazed. He describes the, the game a little bit, and then says he's played the game for a week and still can't escape Cavern 2. I don't think I've ever escaped Cavern 2 either. He describes the graphics as impressive and says, apparently the game is constructed using a custom character set in the special four-color IRG graphics mode, a rather unexploited feature of the Atari until now. And all right, somebody help me figure out what IRG stands for. I know there's a super IRG software-driven graphics modes that I first heard about from Bill Kendrick and his game Gem Drop, where essentially it's, it's antic mode 4 or 5. But every vertical blank, you change the palette. So you get this, on a CRT, you get this blending of colors, so you can get a lot more colors than just the regular five color on the antic modes. But even, So back then, they, know this, they knew this was IRG. I just don't know what IRG stands for. So help me out. Send me a tweet. Anyway, positive review from Compute here. I note it says, A curious feature of this program is it uses the same skill level names as Star Raider does, Novice, Pilot, Warrior, and Commander. Will Caverns of Mars replace Star Raiders in the hearts of Atari space game fans? And I, don't th- I think Caverns of Mars is, you know, it's a fine game, but it's not Star Raiders. And rapidly getting close to the end of the magazine here, in the new releases section, they mention a, a game for the Atari. It says, Epix has released King Arthur's Heir, a new fantasy quest game for the Atari 400-800. And I have not seen that game, so that should be on the list of possible games to look at for this. If I do the sort of game of the magazines thing for this uh, this episode. In the same section, they men- mentioned Data Perfect from LJK, which Wade has reviewed. I'll include a link to that in the show notes. And it mentions the KDOS, the command line DOS that's compatible with Atari DOS 2.0S. And there we go, the standard Commodore ad on the back of the VIC-20 with the creepy picture of William Shatner will close out this issue of Compute. Let's check out Creative Computing. This is July 1982, Volume 8, Number 7. Two bucks, 95 on the cover price. Same font format, you know, Creative Computing. Has this little slash on the side. It says, focus on computer graphics. Although, really, it should say Apple graphics, since it's mostly Apple II high-res stuff. There's a bunch of text here listing stuff they're going to look at. It says, in-depth evaluations of Zoom graphics, Graphforth, Quest Super Colorboard, Talking Games, Snakebite, Apple Pilot, Special Effects, four high-res text generators. And the computer graphics features, says plotting n-space cubes, half-toning digital images, graphic subroutines for Apple, screensaver, Cyrillic editor, 
Turtle Graphics Interpreter Printing Low-Res Graphics, and Mona Lisa Meets Versa Writer. And then finally, above this image that they show here, this is the case against Pilot, which is a theme, I guess, from the compute we just talked about. The sort of dominating the, the lower half of the of the title page, the cover page here, is this computer art. It's a four-color. It's like dominated by uh, blacks, blues, reds, and yellows. And it's a bunch of repeating images, like bordering on the left and right side. And this sort of the central area is this, I don't know, it's hard to describe. To me, it almost looks like a, like a camera tilted on its side, like a really dark portrait of somebody whose face is like smashed against a wall. I don't know. It's, if this is a Rorschach test, I don't know what that says about me, but that's kind of what it, it shows to me. And on the bottom, it says columns for a bunch of different systems. You know, IBM, TRS-80, Atari, PET, uh, and then uh, computing in Britain, verse weaving, whatever that is, and then logo ideas. So it's interesting they have the case against pilot and logo ideas. So pilot and logo are very closely related. So we'll maybe we'll see what that's all about. The table of contents really doesn't have anything new from what was on the cover. So they, apart from like page numbers, so that was a very, either a very efficient use of the cover or a very redundant table of contents. So the Quest Super Color Board, as noted on the cover, apparently is uh, color graphics for S100 machines. And on a facing page is an ad for uh, Infocom Zork 1 and Zork 2. So don't need color graphics for that, but it would play pretty well on an S100, I imagine. CPM machines, I think, run on S100 hardware. As I'm flipping through, I just noticed a little ad. It says a uh, RAM for the Atari. So for the 400, a 32K RAM board from this company. Uh, I don't know the resolution of the scan is pretty low. I can't see. It says the memory something. The memory MB? Oh, the memory mill. I don't know anything about their hardware. So yeah, uh, 400, for the 400, they had a 32K board for 149 and a 48K board for 289. And for the 800, a 32K board was 149, 64K board is 399, and a 128K board was 499. So I wonder how they did the bank switching on that. As we continue, there's a ad for Cannonball Blitz, which is one of the first games I remember seeing on the Apple II. I don't know that it came out for the Atari, but I definitely remember seeing that in uh, in school in the computer lab. And the next page is an ad for the Atari Star Award. It's uh, My First Alphabet with Fernando Herrera. There's a review of the game Snakebite for the Apple, which appears to be some pretty standard snake game. There's a three-page ad for the Sinclair, the ZX81. And I always noticed they never show like the computer with a person or, you know, hands next to it to actually show how small it was. I never knew how small it actually was in, in real life, because I'd never seen one. But it is super, super tiny if you've never seen one. In the ad, they show it sort of sitting next to a TV screen, but it's a, it's sort of the picture of the, the computer, and the TV screen is a drawing, and so there's, there's no actual scale, because the, had they, if it were an actual scale, then it would be like a four-inch TV screen, but it, it's drawn as if it was like an, a regular color TV set back in the day, you know, with like knobs and everything. But if if that were to scale, the knobs would be like you know two millimeters in diameter or something. And here we start some of the Apple graphics stuff. There's a, a graphics printer program. There's a art program called Special Effects from Pegwood Software by Mark Pilzarski, who was the Kansas Fest keynote speaker. What was that? The last actual Kansas Fest, the 2019 Kansas Fest. There's an article about high-res text generators for the Apple. I have a soft spot in my heart for this, because I wrote one. I wrote. I have a program called ASMGEN, A-S-M-G-E-N. It's available on GitHub. It allows you to generate a high-res character generator. It's pretty optimized. It's faster than anything I had ever found. I'll put a link to that in the show notes, if you happen to be an Apple person, as well as an Atari person. Obviously, we don't need it on the Atari, because we have our all of our font modes. But for the Apple, you're limited to drawing on high-res your own characters if you 
if you want to do anything but the stock uh, character set. There's Archelon Graphforth, which is a graphic fourth language, or I guess it is a, it's for the Apple II, and it has some graphics commands built in for it. Fourth is, again, one of those impenetrable languages I could just never get my head around. Article on Pilot for the Apple. Pilot's a little bit more straightforward, I guess. I mean, of course, we have Atari Pilot. It's a variant, I guess, of the same syntax. And then the article, The Case Against Pilot. This is Pros and Cons of Computer-Assisted Instruction Languages and Authoring Systems by Paul F. Merrill. So this is a, just a gatekeeping article, really. You know, this person has an axe to grind against essentially starting at a, a more like simplistic language and then working your way up. Yeah, the title pretty much gives away the conclusion of this article. So basically, I read it as kind of a long screed about, you know, how this doesn't develop full, like, well-rounded programmers. And some of the little call-outs in the article, it says, The very nature of the principal pilot command strongly encouraged novice programmers to use a mediocre strategy, as if we should introduce novice programmers to assembly language right away. And this author uses the term authoring systems, which seems like he defines as uh, languages that allow authors to turn out software using templates. And to me, I think this misses the point of Pilot. Pilot being some way to get people introduced to what computers can do, not like they're, you're going to use Pilot to write you know, a flight simulator. Another quote, authoring systems reduce cost and effort by reducing variety in much the same way that cost and effort are reduced in fast food restaurants. Again, you know, fast food restaurants have their purpose, just like Pilot has its purpose. You know, fast food restaurants are for a quick bite you do occasionally. And unless you're Donald Trump, you're not going to use fast food restaurants to have a big lavish party. You know, if you're the, say, leader of some large nation and you're hosting some hundreds of people after they win some sporting event and you have the facility of the nation at your disposal, you hire a caterer and you bring in, you know, quality food. If you are a team of people that are going to write a flight simulator, you don't write it in pilot. You write it in a language that can support the stuff that you want to do. So the author, I think here, totally misses the point of using Pilot as a stepping stone to some other language. Just gatekeeping for gatekeeping sense. I don't, yeah, I don't understand the pur- purpose of this. I would probably not have read this article when I was actually picking up these magazines, and I would just skip right over it. But now I have given myself the ability to be uh, annoyed by articles that I would have skipped over when I was a kid. There's an article on the cover story art. Uh, this the artist who his name is Walter White. <laughs> Walter Wright. No, not Walter White. Yeah, it was not Pontiac Aztecs driving around. Walter Wright. And it kind of goes over the sort of way he developed some of the art. And it's very abstract, very geometric. It says he uses lots of reflections in the software that he's writing. So, like, lots of mirroring of objects and stuff. There's an article by David Lubar called The Graph Paper, which is a start of a series, apparently, to understand Apple II high-res graphics. And I definitely would have skipped over this as a kid because, uh, you know, we had apples at the school that I went to, but the graphics, the internals of the graphics were very mysterious. And so I was just using basic, you know, with H line, V line and all that stuff. Now I know quite a bit more about Apple graphics. So it'll be interesting to see how, where this goes and I, how in depth they get. There's an article, Art and the Computer as a computer art course. The author is Batya Friedman and about how students are introduced to some of the, the ways you can create art on a computer. There's an article about half-toning digital images by John S. Browning, which uh, half-tones, I guess, are ways to use just like black and white dots to generate different images. And so there's a bunch of examples of different half-toning methods. There's a graphics package for the Apple II by Christopher Hansen, which is a bunch of, looks like, basic programs to help you draw stuff. There's the article on the Cyrillic alphabet titled Cyrillic Anyone by Jeffrey Mangasarian. And it's kind of related to that Apple II uh, high-res character generator article of earlier. And it's about how to use the high-res screen to generate uh, Cyrillic characters. 
There's an article on printing Lois graphics with Apple. Then there's another article about the Turtle Graphics in- Interpreter for Apple's. The article on plotting n-space cubes. So it's like a hypercube is a four-dimensional cube, but this goes on to arbitrary dimensions. And again, it's for the Apple II. There's an article titled Screensaver by Andy Gamble, which Screensaver now sort of means, you know, something that is displayed on the screen to keep, like, screen burn-in from happening, which, you know, of course, is not necessarily on LCD screens anymore, but back when CRTs were around, they were used. But what this really means is how to save a copy of the data on the screen. And it's not, it's only for the pet, and it doesn't anywhere appear in the article, or in the title anyway. It appears it's buried in the text of the article. So one would hope they would have put that somewhere more uh, prominent, so you wouldn't I'm not that anybody's going to type anything in without knowing what it is, but still. There's an article, Verse Weaving, A Challenge for All Ages, by Ned J. Davison. And it turns out this is a po- poetry-generating program for the Atari. And so it's it's in Atari Basic, so you sort of make up some lines of rhyming text, and it appears like it sort of randomizes the order. It's a pretty small program. If I were more interested in Basic, I might type it in to try it out, but yeah, I'm not that super interested in Basic anymore. There's a recurring column called The Other Side by... Guy Cuny. And this one is about the BBC microcomputer, which in 82, I guess, is just starting to come out. It's a 6502 machine. It's really pretty powerful. This is the computer my buddy Neil had, and he gave a presentation at Kansas Fest one year about it. Seems like a really interesting machine. It had a, like a second, it had a coprocessor slot, I guess. And apparently that's how they developed the ARM RISC chip. It was using the BBC to help them design the second uh, computer processor. Further on the article, Clive Sinclair is mentioned, and he, of course, is the founder of Sinclair Computers, and they tried to bid on the BBC contract and didn't get it. And it says here that uh, Sinclair was incensed about it. There's a movie called Micro Men. It's a dramatization of this sort of Acorn versus Sinclair battle. That's really pretty good. I recommend it. And then we come to Outpost Atari by David and Sandy Small. In this Outpost Atari, they talk about going to the 7th West Coast Computer Fair that was held March 19th through 22nd at the San Francisco Civic Center. Quite a show, they said, being as near as it was to the various Atari offices. It attracted many Atari employees. Said they had a bunch of software and hardware people showing off their stuff. And listed a few. Said uh, Scott Adams of Adventure International showed up with a complete castle, they said, and ran their business from inside. They mentioned serious software, online systems, and creative computing had a bunch of games set up to play. And particularly noted that John Harris was showing off his new Frogger. He said, one thing that consistently came up when talking to software houses like Sirius, Creative Computing, Synapse, Dimensory International, Datasoft, Gabelli, was the great interest in Atari software. And they said, if you have written some decent software, particularly a game, be sure to let a software house see it. It may be worth your while. And it's nice to see we're still in a time where Atari is on the upswing and not being sidelined by other things. They answer a little mail, talk about, and then talk about Atari in Europe, kind of summarize a little, some of the difference, differences between the European Ataris, talking about you know, tied to PAL versus NTSC. Interestingly, it says all European models have the GTIA, hence the GTIA shortage here. And I wasn't necessarily aware that the having GTIAs shipped to the European computers is what caused the delay. And the remainder of the column is devoted to a, sort of an overview of all the languages currently available. It goes over Atari Basic, the 8K Assembler Editor, Microsoft Basic, the Macro Assembler Editor, Atari Pascal, Atari Pilot, and Fourth. And there's no official Atari Fourth. Or rather, there's no fourth sold by Atari itself, but there's a bunch of other fourths on the market from third parties and lists several of those, mentioning Valforth in particular as something that they were looking forward to. So that's it for the Atari Outpost. There's other stuff from other, for other systems like the IBM, the PET column, the TRS-80 column, 
skip, skip, skip. There's the software legal forum, which I've gotten into before. I think it's by the same author, Harold Novick. I don't recall off the top of my head, and it's been such a long time. This one in particular is about software patents, which I'm personally against, but I definitely would have skipped this article as a kid, and I'm probably going to skip it now, actually, because I'm yeah not super excited about spending my time talking about software patents. In the new products, the new books section, there's nothing listing the Atari at all. So we're getting near the end, and, and William Shatner has been demoted to the inside back cover here for his Commodore VIC-20 ad. On the outside cover is the ad for Elephant floppy disks. So that's it for creative computing, and that ends the big four, of which we only had two this time. And now we'll look at some of the other magazines that will have a little more of a cursory summary. And first is Byte Magazine, and by Byte Magazine, I mean we aren't actually going to look at Byte Magazine because it's it's a slog to go through. There's no Atari stuff in this issue. Um, you know, in the future, let me know if you want to like me to read the table of contents for magazines I don't really cover. Um, yeah, there's really not much of interest to me in this magazine. I did flip through it, and the one thing I saw that was I don't know amusing was there was a the first ad that I've seen for the Commodore 64, and in it it claims that I mean it's, mo- it's mostly factual from what I can tell, except it claims that their five and a quarter disk capacity is 500 kilobytes, which is far from the truth. The C64 had a, had a very different floppy format than the Atari. The Atari had one of the lowest single-density floppy formats of anybody, following just straight, I think, FM recording. And double-density was MFM, if I remember that right. But in reality, the C64 had 170K disks, and they had some unusual track format where they actually had more sectors on the outer tracks than the inner tracks. But regardless of that, you know, even if they had a 500k disk capacity at the transfer rate that their floppy drive had, that would take, what, hours to transfer 500k? They had 300 bytes per second. I guess there was some bug or flaw they had in um, whatever chip they used to access the serial port. The Atari didn't have a fast floppy drive by any means. It was, you know, 19.2 baud, so it was at 2,400 bytes per second. But still, that is you know, eight times faster than the C64 disc. So it wouldn't be an Atari podcast without bashing the C64 at some point. I don't know how they got away with that in that advertisement. That that was clearly not the correct transfer rate. But on that note, we'll abandon this issue a bite. And yeah, in the future, if you want me to cover like table of contents of magazines that I sort of skip over, let me know. I can like do that much if there's an interest in it. This being an Atari-focused podcast, though, I don't expect there's going to be a lot more Atari info in Byte. But I guess I'll see what the interest is here in the audience, and we'll go from there. Let's take a quick peek at the computer and video games. This is July 1982, 75 pence on the cover price. The cover art is a sort of a vista of pyramids, presumably in Egypt, with a palm tree in the very near foreground and a large pyramid in the center and then a a smaller pyramid further off to the left. There's kind of a haze or a fog at the like mid-altitude of the pyramid and sort of clouds behind the pyramid. And the... the feature text is Imhotep, the Pyramid Builder. Well, uh, it lists Missile Command, then more pages of games programs, and at the bottom it says, Meet the First Lady of the Arcades, and I can only imagine the misogyny to follow. So, yeah, we'll check that out. The table of contents has the normal news and reviews section and a bunch of listings, and then presumably what they're going to talk about with the uh, First Lady of Arcades turns out to be Miss Pac-Man. And in, there's a little blurb here talking about how video games sort of designed for boys, and then all that's now changing with the help of Miss Pac-Man. It says the latest cute game out in America it is supposed to be particularly appealing to the gentler sex, which is a turn of phrase I hate, but was not uncommon back then. 
they go on and say the rest of this article they point to is deciding to check and see what the British video game industry is doing for the female playing public and whether they are giving girls what they want from video games, which in itself is fine. It's just the language that they used at this time always seemed to be framed in sexist terms. Flipping through, they have a lot of stuff for the ZX Spectrum. That seems to be the dominant system here. They do talk a little bit about the VIC-20. They mentioned the Acorn Atom, which I guess is the precursor to the BBC. In some of the little mini-reviews up front, they talk about Defender being available from Atari here soon. And this is for home systems. They talk about Atari being in the mode of buying up licenses to arcade games and then converting them to the home market. On the following pages, an ad for Atari. It says the graphic difference between Atari computers and all the others, and they show eight screenshots of various things, although not a ton of games. So Music Composer, Graphit, which is like a graphing program, an Intro to Basic, which I think was a cassette program? European countries. Obviously, they aren't going to do like states and capitals here for the U.S. stuff if they're advertising in a U.K. magazine. And then Scram, Missile Command, Star Raiders, and Basketball. There's a little article on chess, and it says, it's the first question prompted by computerized chess has still to be answered. How soon will they reach world championship standards? This is what, 82? Was it nine, in the 90s that like Deep Blue beat Kasparov? I can't remember. Then they get into the listings. The Imhotep program they mentioned on the cover is a 16K Apple program written in BASIC. And it covers, what, three pages? I think nine columns. And there's a few more listings. And then they come to one called Casino Royal. Not Casino Royale. Casino Royal by Nigel Hughes. And it's for the 400, 800 in BASIC. The text of the article is written in this, like, orange-colored font. It's kind of hard to read in the reproduction. So it's kind of hard to figure out what it's, what's going on. But it's quite a long listing. It's like four, four pages, two columns each page. There's a few short little columns on programming. And then they get into some slightly more detailed reviews. The only one I see for the Atari is a review of the game called Crossfire, which is kind of vaguely reminiscent of Spectar or Targ, except you're shooting stuff that approaches from the sides rather than kind of chasing you immediately from the inside of this, this sort of gridded maze. It's a very, like, you know, early 80s type arcade style game. And then we come to the article on Miss Pac-Man. Although before we get to that, there's a, on the facing page, there's a ad for Llamasoft software, Jeff Minter. And I just happened to be looking at the uh, at James Haig's giant list of video game, classic video game programmers, and Jeff Minter's entry is just huge. And now I finally point my ire towards this article about Miss Pac-Man. The article's written by Elspeth Joyner, which is traditionally a woman's name, so I'm assuming it's a woman writing to a male audience. And one of the few factual things about this article is in the, contained in the first statement, saying it's a well-known fact that far fewer women than men venture into arcades to play video games. But then talks about how Pac-Man sort of changed the dynamics in, in the U.S. that appealed to men and women. It said it was the first game that appealed to men and women, which I don't know that that's true. Again, this is a whole bunch of assumptions and just throwing stuff at the wall. Describes how Miss Pac-Man sort of created specifically at women, and this is how it's sort of the same in concept as Pac-Man, but variation. But then goes on to say an extra but nauseating feature of Miss Pac-Man is a love story. It's like why is that nauseating? What is the problem? I don't know. I'll stop. It, this is just. The whole article is just about, you know, stereotypes and stuff. And uh, I will mention one more thing. There's a quote by some industry person, I don't know, David Adams. It's not clear uh, where this person works, but says, uh, women have got to design the games themselves. After all, they know what they like, which there's just a host of problems with that. You know, how many women were designing games? How many women were being allowed to sort of study computer science at university or you know, how much advertising was targeted at women. It's just like, yeah, I know. Okay, I will stop. Carrying on, 
no real further mentions of the Atari. There, at the end here, there's a extra section for the ZX Spectrum. It's like 16 pages of programs, and there's interesting. There's there's games that run in 1K, and a couple that take 16K. Maybe it just came with 1K, because I do see ads for uh, 16K RAM expansions here. That's it. The back cover shows a, a hardware keyboard for the ZX Spectrum that looks like it's full size, so it probably dwarfs the Spectrum itself. Let's do a quick look at the computer gaming world. This is volume two, number four, for July and August, 82, seventy-five on the cover price. The computer gaming world logo is in purple on the top with a white diskette. It's its sort of logo of this era. And the image is a, it's a photo of a military uniform of some sort. It's got a paratrooper badge, three medals, one of which has like three bronze devices, a riflery badge, and then below that, has a floppy disk on it with the notation that says expert. So this is a short magazine, just about 48 pages, and not a whole lot of Atari stuff, but there were a few things I wanted to mention. In the table of contents, this is a bunch of games that they're going to talk about. The only one I recognize at this point is Choplifter, and there are a couple of regular departments, including the Atari Arcade, which we'll look at. In the letters here, it, the first one is from an Apple III owner, and talking about how the Apple III is, is mostly compatible to the Apple II, but it's yeah, not super compatible if they use any, like, paddles, apparently, is the the particular feature of this person's letter. Apparently, if you use the standard OS routines, you can read the paddles, but if you try to ping the hardware directly, it doesn't work. I remember seeing an Apple III, and a salesperson tried to push the Apple III on us when we were looking for computers, and it was way too expensive. I mean, you think an Apple II is expensive, try an Apple III. But his big point, this salesperson, was that the Apple III was, you know, could play all the Apple II games, but, you know, obviously, that was incorrect. There's another letter here about a strategy for Eastern Front, and Eastern Front was only available on the Atari, of course, so it's nice to see this. It, it's got a lot of coverage. So there's a lot of detailed strategy stuff in this particular letter, so if you're playing Eastern Front, it might be worth a read. I've played it only cursorily, as my review showed way back in episode whatever that was, a long time ago. Then we move on to some reviews. There's a review for Warp Factor, which is a game that I don't know, a war game from SSI. There's a game called Rendezvous, a space flight simulation for the Apple II from Eduware Services. Don't know that company. I imagine 4AM has deprotected that one, though. And if that reference is unknown to you, I'll include a link to the sh- in the show notes for some amazing stuff that has been done by this Apple II copy protection guru. Amazing stuff, for sure. There's a review of some... Four, it looks like four economic simulations, and I'll only mention one, Cartels and Cutthroats, because this is written by Denny Bunton, who wrote Mule, and there's another article later in this magazine that we'll talk about. There's a review of Controller, which is an air traffic control simulation. It's from Avalon Hill, and it's this review is for the Atari version. There's plenty of screenshots. Looks like it's sort of a text-based game, sort of simulating a radar screen, and it lists all the aircraft, and you have like altitude heading and velocity vectors. It sort of seems like that game I talked about with uh, Chris Olson way back in episode, shoot, what was it, 12, I think? But it had this digitized speech, and I can't remember the name off the top of my head. But this one clearly doesn't have digitized speech. There's a review of the game Pursuit of the Graph Spee, which is an Apple II game from SSI. The next review is Starship Commander, a strategy game by Voyager Software for the Apple II. A few little mini-reviews, and then we get to the Atari Arcade by Bill Willett. So it looks like just kind of a rundown of some of the new stuff that's available. It also mentions here a Protector, Chicken, and Dodge Racer from Synapse Software. Mentions Datasoft's Tumblebugs, Gamma Software's Hockey for two, three, or four players, SSI's 
Tigers in the Snow and the Battle of Shiloh, which has been advertised. I should have mentioned that. There's big, glossy advertisements in this and Compute. And Epic's The King Arthur's Court, which was mentioned in Compute as well. Since there's a game called Nightmare, which puts you in a magical castle with gargoyles. There's Vulcan's Isle, Crypt of the Undead, and so there's a one-page article with just a lot of like new releases, apparently. There's another review of a game called Dnieper River Line, spelled D-N-I-E-P-E-R. Looks like it's a World War II strategy game from Avalon Hill, available for the Atari. And here we have a little review of Choplifter. This is the Apple version, but the Atari version is, well, it's a straight port of the Apple, so it's really the same. Calls it an outstanding new release. And it is really good. It's certainly a classic game. And here we go is an article that I wanted to talk about. It's called Real World Gaming by Danny Button. And this is the same Danny Button, who's the author of Mule, and talks about simulation software. And so this is about a year before Mule was released. And in the article, it talks about like strategy games like Monopoly and how computer gaming at this point hasn't sort of evolved or passed the board game stages. And so they haven't really taken advantage of what computers can do. Monopoly apparently was a big influence on Mule. And Mule, of course, is an example of what strategy games can do when you're not thinking about a board game. And a quote from her says, That notwithstanding, the unfortunate fact is that many computer simulation games are copying from our predecessors of the pre-computer days. We are using many game conventions that are no longer necessary. And clearly was probably in the midst of thinking about Mule or designing Mule when this was written. There's a review of a game called Casino by Datamost for the Apple II. And a bunch of small little reviews here. There's only one that's for the Atari called Guns of Fort Defiance from Avalon Hill. The other reviews are just for the Apple II, except for Deadline, which is the Infocom game. And that'll bring us to the end here of the computer gaming world. Let's take a super quick look at Micro, the 6502-6809 journal. I have my copy right here. This is the July 1982 edition, issue number 50. U.S. Canada, $2.50. International edition, $2.95. U.K. edition, £1.80. On it is a usual image of you inside the monitor looking out. So you see the backwards keyboard, and then there's some sort of stone-carved figures in a forest. Not quite sure why. Doesn't relate to anything on the title, because the uh, the text is an Apple feature. And then there's a 6502-6809 translations, rewriting pet ROMs, and an AIM tape copy utility. So, yeah, really it's just a bunch of Apple stuff. They were not kidding. The Apple feature covers the bulk of the magazine. If I knew anything about this C809, the, the computer-assisted translation might be interesting. Flip that to page... What was that page? 77. It's interesting because the 6809 is so much more capable than 6502. It must be pretty easy to translate that direction. Going the other way would be virtually impossible because the 6809 has a bunch more registers, a bunch more addressing modes. So I can see where they might be able to, to translate from the 6502 to the 6809. Sort of when I initially looked at the article, I was thinking it was both ways, but... No, it's just the one way. The one thing that could be applicable to the Atari is actually this sec- this um, article on build an Apple cart, which is like plans to build a yeah like desk for your Apple. It gives the dimensions of it says particle board, and so it gives all the dimensions of the individual panels you need, and how many you know wood screws and other bits you need, and it includes a picture. It's a nice like it's kind of wide enough. It's probably hmm, I probably could guess from the dimensions, couldn't I? Looks like 36 inches wide and fairly tall. It's got a space for the, the computer on the main shelf and then a, a monitor stand. And then above it, there's another bookshelf. 
But yeah, that's about it for the micro. It's not super interesting this month from an Atari perspective. Let's take a scan through SoftSide. This is issue number 31, volume 5, number 10. And they don't put a date or a price on their magazines. The cover has their SoftSide logo in the left-hand corner, and then Computer Awareness in Education. And the background is sort of the like line printer tractor feed paper with the blue and white horizontal stripes. I don't know if you remember that. I certainly remember that. And have a few pencils and, oddly, an Atari joystick. And then the only text, other than the, the sort of title summary, is uh, CATS, the acronym standing for Computer Assisted Testing System. The inside front cover is that Synapse software ad for Protector, Slime, Chicken, and Nautilus, which I've certainly seen a lot of, you know, full-color ad. And the facing page is uh, the Atari voice box by the Alien Group, which plugs into the SIO port. I don't know anything about this, you know, how it compares to SAM in terms of speech quality. I mean, it's a hardware box, so I assume it's, you know, fairly detailed speech. But I've never actually heard one uh, produce any output, so I don't know what it sounds like. Then we come to the table of contents. It calls out the main article as the front runner. That's its heading on the thing on the um, page, and that's the CATS program, which is that computer-assisted testing system. It has some features, departments, then the Apple side, the Atari side, and the TRS-80 side are sort of the the breakouts for the individual articles on each system. As you flip through a few pages and skip over some of the editorial stuff, there's an article under the heading Entertainment Tomorrow. It's called Motion Graphics for the 21st Century by our old friend Fred Dignazio and another author, Alan Wold. This is an article on digital movie making and then like VR and movies and sort of how the art of movie making might advance in the next, you know, 10, 20 years. And they sort of get the idea of like nonlinear video editing where they bring in film and edit it on the computer. And then they also have a section on interactive movies, which really didn't come into my awareness until like the last several years. I only know about one because my kids played like a Minecraft movie, sort of where you get to make decisions on what, the, you know, what the main characters do at certain points, which I guess really isn't all that different from like Space Ace or Dragon's Lair, those um, Don Bluth animated arcade games that came out in, what, 83 or 84? Wikipedia says 83, so it must be correct. There's kind of a little joke column here. It says a few words from the Phantom programmer saying this programmer wants a new command for BASIC called PUNT, which will kick you off the computer or lock it up if you sit there for too long. And it says, a little quote from the article, says, as far as I know, no system offers a true punt. I am told the Atari already supports a primitive form of this, where it allegedly locks itself up from time to time, requiring the system to be shut down and cold started. So, ha ha ha. There was a bug in Atari Basic Rev A, and I don't recall the exact sequence of steps that would trigger it, but if something in the editor doing a sequence of, like, lists or prints or something in some certain order would cause it to lock up. It was supposed to be corrected in revision B, but then they fixed that but introduced new bugs, so they have different bugs in revision B. So yeah, programming is hard. Get good testers. In the computer graphics section, there's an article on transformation techniques, variation in the rate of change, which is about morphing one graphic image into another in, you know, 2D shapes. This is not like, you know, morphing like Terminator 2 kind of morphing. The article's by Joan Trockenbrod and has a listing, a basic listing of some, looks like source for the Apple II, where it's got some data statements and um, drawing some shapes and changing some of the variables and distances that as the shapes move, it, it changes the speed at which the shape changes. The next article is Why Johnny Can't Program Materials for Computer Literacy by Dean F. Hayden Macy. The big call-out is a quote from a professor 
at the University of Oregon, saying the ability to use computers could become as important as the ability to read and write. And it's certainly true nowadays, so yeah, high props for uh, seeing the future. In the article saying, by 1985, a high percentage of all jobs will involve computers in some way. And I don't know if it was true quite that early, but certainly it's true now. Later on in the article, it says there was a, a survey, um, I guess there's a trade magazine called Instructor, which is a national educational magazine, apparently for teachers. They ran a survey and said 4,000 classroom teachers responded, said that the Apple was the most used school computer. The TRS-80, doesn't say which one, I'm assuming the Model 1, I guess. Uh, so the Apple was first, most often used in computer labs, TRS-82, and the Atari ranked fifth. No word on what was three and four, but since this magazine only covers um, Apple, TRS-80, and Atari at this point, then, uh, yeah, I don't, know what, I don't know what to guess. Any ideas? What do you think might be number three and number four most likely to be found in computer labs? The article does mention that this author in particular, anyway, was impressed by the manuals that the TRS-80, or that came with the TRS-80. It said, it assumes nothing other than the person reading this can actually read this. And at first glance, it looks like the manual was written for idiots. But then notes that we may all seem to be idiots when we're coming to something that we don't have any experience with at all. And he says, alas, the authors of the Apple and Atari manuals were not as aware of their audience. The next page is that CATS, the Computer Assisted Testing System, says part one. And this is, uh, eventually it's, it's a listing. It's, so it's a sort of a way to create your own tests that you can then print out. I don't know if part two in some upcoming issue will add more features. But you can basically create a test, save it to disk, load it back up at some future time and edit it to create like a new test and then save it out again and, and print it. The first listing is the Atari, but they also have the Apple and the TRS-80. This is not something that really needs a screenshot, I guess, although they do provide one for, it looks like, the TRS-80 screen. There's an ad from SoftSide itself that says, Back issues, once they're gone, are they gone forever? And the future calling, archive.org to the rescue. Then we hit the Apple section, which I'll mostly skip over, except there's a review of a game called Firebird from Gabelli Software. I don't remember seeing this. I remember seeing all, all of Master Gabelli's other stuff, you know, like Space Eggs and Gorgon and stuff. But I don't remember seeing this. This is after he sort of left Sirius Software and, you know, struck off on his own. And after that, we get to the Atari side. This is the first part of the Atari side is the program called TuneIn, which is kind of like a Simon program. It plays music and you've got to recall the things in order. It's a really nice listing. It's in BASIC, but the way they've done it is they've sort of broken out each section of code and interspersed in that is just like some text commentary where the author is explaining how it's how it's designed and how it works. And it turns out it's authors. It's W. Morris and J. Cope, first names not given. It's not a super huge program. It covers three pages, but again, you know, it's interspersed with some text describing what it does, and so it's not a whole lot of lines. It's not a huge program. They do include a screenshot, so thumbs up for that. There's a little mini article. They call them K-Biters. I don't recall if this is a common feature or not, but there's like a 20-line basic program that prints like Mondrian sort of looking pieces of art. It's like breaking rectangles up into smaller rectangles and kind of recursively going down. Softside also could come with a floppy, and there's a floppy-only program that's kind of explained here called Menu Plus. It looks like it's a sort of a resident program to help you with DOS commands, kind of similar to what we talked about in Compute earlier. Yeah, Menu Plus by Paul Marentet. After that, there's a review of a program called Simulated Computer, programmed by James Weeder of EduSoft. The review is by Craig Chamberlain. So you're simulating a very, very small computer system. It has an accumulator, a program counter, looks like 20 bytes of memory, 
looks like you program an octal, and it sort of steps through the cycles of this simulated computer so you can learn how a CPU operates. It says it was submitted to APX, but uh, K7 has a listing of all the APX software, and it's not listed there, so I don't know if it was rejected or what, but it does not appear to show up, at least not under this title. There's a review of Atari Microsoft Basic, which was a disc-only Basic, and used a lot of RAM and never really got much traction. It had a lot of extra features, though, and it would have been a different situation, you know, had this been released on cartridge. I don't know if that would have meant we would have gotten more stuff, since it would have been easier to port from, you know, one Microsoft dialect to another from different machines. So, I don't know, one of those unanswerable questions, I guess. Although trying to cram Microsoft Basic into 8K may have been a non-starter. There's an article exploring the Atari Frontier, Antic, and the Display List, Part 2, by Alan J. Zett. This is note, this is the second part of a series, and assumes you've been keeping up with it. I have not, I totally forget. So we'll see what this looks like. So it looks like in this article, they're talking mostly about the text modes and how to position you know, various text modes, because some text modes use 40 bytes on a line and some use 20. And there's a nice table of all the modes and the sizes they use, the screen resolution, that kind of stuff. But if you want to learn about display lists now, I recommend my display list interrupt tutorial at playermissile.com where you can ignore the display list interrupt part and just talk about the display lists themselves. So I have a big section uh, sort of summarizing display lists at the, at the front of that article. And we get into the TRS-80 side, so we'll skip, skip, skip to the new product section. Not a lot of Atari stuff here. Although something that could be used for an Atari, there's a the microcart. It's a new concept in computer cabinetry designed by computer professionals to provide both home and office users with an organized means of consolidating microsystem components. So yeah, it's a rolly cart for your computer. But it has a nice pull-out shelf where you put the computer and disk drive and printer and stuff, and then on top you can set your monitor. Comparing this to the micro cart, the do-it-yourself cart plans they had in the this issue of micro, it's like they're, they're almost different purposes. This is like a closed thing you can cut it. Like, shut the doors and lock them and, like, like roll the computer away and store it, whereas the one in the micro is actually something to for, like, daily use. And we reach the end. The back cover is Elephant Floppy Disks. Anytime it's not William Shatner advertising the VIC-20, it's a win. And now here's a special guest to conclude the magazines for this episode. Hello, I am Kay Savitz, and we are looking at the Atari Program Exchange catalog for summer 1982. This catalog has a cover price of $2, but that's kind of a lie because, I don't know about you, but it always just showed up in my mailbox for free. This is the uh, first anniversary edition of uh, this catalog, which is to say it is the fifth APX catalog. Uh, It launched in summer 1981. It was quarterly, so this is the fifth one being uh, the first anniversary edition. The cover is a great cartoon uh, of people, I tried to count them, it's maybe like 70 people clamoring, clamoring, I tell you, in a giant computer store for their Atari program exchange software. And they're all holding their APX boxes, which have the, the rainbow stripe covers, and they're looking at them excitedly, and they are holding out fistfuls of money to the uh, computer store em- employees, and they all have great giant smiling faces, uh, I guess because they don't, because they, they, they know that they are in a computer store uh, in a time where computer stores still exist, and, and one time in the far future, they basically won't uh, be this experience of shopping for Atari software in a giant crowd in a giant computer store. 
Now, at this point, we are a little less than halfway through Atari Program Exchange's short life. So, things are picking up. Uh, according to the, the article in the, the front matter here, it says, uh, APX sales are booming. To keep up with demand, we've added a second-order processing shift. A major reason for the increase in sales is the many Atari home computer retailers who are now carrying a wide selection of APX programs, and they're having to replenish their supplies to meet the needs of their customers. They also say they are now able to send international orders to customers, and they note that APX products have a new look. As we grow, we're trying to improve APX products in every way. Besides continually working with our authors to improve their program contributions, we also consider our appearance, and we decided recently it was time for more improvement. APX products now come in a sturdy box offering better protection during shipment and display on retailer shelves. The boxes clearly indicate whether the program is on cassette or diskette. You can easily identify an APX box by our logo and bright color spectrum, the same elements that appear on our redesigned user instruction covers. So at this point, APX is switched to the rainbow stripe design, which will appear on their uh, boxes and manuals for for quite some time. Also, it says in here that uh, MECC programs now available through APX, that's the Minnesota Educational Computing Consortium. They're the the company that's best known for uh, distributing Oregon Trail. Educators will be pleased to learn that the Minnesota Educational Computing Consortium, MECC, has arranged to distribute much of its large collection of outstanding educational software through APX. As we go to press, four diskettes are available. The complete collection will comprise many more diskettes. So that's cool, although it's interesting to note that Oregon Trail was not one of those programs that was released uh, by MECC over APX. There was a version uh, that Atari sold that really wasn't as good as the Apple version. And I believe that the MECC programs sold through APX were the only ones to have copy protection. So it's all been happiness and good news to this point, but on the next page, APX gives us a a, a big old finger wag. It says, it has come to our attention that several APX programs are being copied and distributed or sold in violation of federal copyright laws. Where we can, we are taking steps to prevent this activity so that our program authors will receive the royalty payments to which they are entitled. One step we've initiated is to start copy-protecting APX programs. Hey, I just said that about the MECC titles. Because we must study each program individually to apply the most appropriate protection method, we're experiencing some temporary delays in preparing our new programs for distribution. Once we establish the best copy protection method for each program we carry, we anticipate returning to our usual pattern of having all programs listed in the catalog available upon the catalog's publication. Meanwhile, we apologize for this temporary inconvenience imposed upon all of us by you dirty, dirty pirates. Okay, maybe they didn't say that. Uh, But like I said... I don't think they really got far with copy protection, except for the MECC titles, which I'm guessing they had to do contractually. So now we're into the actual catalog of software. The first section is personal finance and record keeping, in which there are three new pieces of software in this catalog. Family Vehicle Expense by Jerry Falkenhan, Database Slash Report System by James W. Burley, and Recipe Search and Save by Edward Lehman. Being the only three new programs in that category, they are also the three winners of the best new software in that category, and those authors won certificates for free Atari hardware and software. In the business and professional applications category, the only new piece of software is Calculator. It's uncredited, but I am 99% sure that this calculator was programmed by Carol Shaw of River Raid fame. The source code for Calculator is available at Internet Archive and GitHub. 
In the Personal Interest and Development category, there are two new programs, Astrology by Harry Coons and Art Prague and Going to the Dogs by Michael Kirtley. Going to the Dogs is of particular interest to me because as someone who's been trying to interview all of the APX authors, I have not been able to find Michael Kirtley anywhere. And this program is a system to project the outcome of races at the dog tracks. With Going to the Dogs, you can make predictions based on past performances. The program's four main menu selections guide you easily through creating data disks to analyze the races. So that's, a, I think, a really unusual use of microcomputers. And dog racing wasn't legal in that many states. So I'm really curious to know uh, how well uh, this sold. But so far, I haven't been able to find Mr. Kirtley. Moving on to the education category, there are eight new pieces of software there, including the stuff from Minnesota Educational Computing Consortium. Uh, their four pieces include instructional computing demonstration, metric and problem solving, elementary biology, and Music 1, Terms and Notations. The music series will grow to be three in all, but just the first one is available now. Also in the education category are the 3R Math System by Dan Rohr and Frog Master, a strange little game by Michael Crick, and two math programs by the Soft Warehouse, AlgaCalc and PolyCalc, for learning algebra and calculus. In the entertainment category, there are nine new programs, including Galahad and the Holy Grail by Douglas Crockford, which won a prize from Atari Program Exchange, and would prove to be a fairly popular game on the Atari 8-bits. There's also Seven Card Stud, a user programmable simulation, which is a poker game by Monty Webb, and Checker King by William H. Northrup, Rabots by Jeff Johannigman, Salmon Run by Bill Williams, which won third prize in the education category, Pushover by Joel Gluck, the Midas Touch by Dwayne Bolster, Jaxo by John Ortiz, and Jukebox Number 1 by Lee Actor. Do you need a new approach to home entertainment? How about some elegant music as background for your next dinner party? Created with the help of Advanced Music System, Jukebox Number 1 turns your Atari home computer into a record player you can set and forget. In the system software category, there are two new programs, Microsoft Basic Cross-Reference Utility by Fred Thorlin, he was the big boss at APX, and Player Generator by Paul G. Abel, Utility Diskette 2 by RLM Microsystems, and the Cosmatic Atari Development Package by John R. Powers, which was a cross-assembler for the Cosmac Elf, a computer that ran on the RCA 1802 chip. So that's it for new stuff in this catalog. It comes in at a thick 80 pages. It contains a interesting combination of popular software and really niche stuff like the Cosmatic Development Package and the Dog Racing Program. It really shows some signs of Atari Program Exchange starting to grow up, what with the admonitions against piracy, the details about software being available in more retail establishments, and the partnership with Minnesota Educational Computing Consortium. That's all for this one. Thanks. All right, let's look at a game. This is Typo Attack by David Bueller. Originally released in 1982 through APX and then re-released in 1984 by Atari on a cartridge. The only difference that I can tell is the cartridge version has an intro screen that has some animated hands typing the letters typo attack as they appear from the top of the screen. The APX version just boots right into the main uh, selection screen. This was reviewed by Wade on uh, Season 1, Episode 17 of his Inversitasky podcast. And he has a great in-depth review of its use as a piece of productivity software and how it was able to improve his typing skills. He said he debated about including it in his podcast, since it is a game, and it kind of blurs that line between game and teaching tool, kind of like gamification before gamification was a word. So the game basically is a combination of Space Invaders and Missile Command. You've got these eight bases on the bottom of the screen, 
each one of which can shoot a missile upward, and you have these aliens attacking you from above, sort of marching down the screen. The bases are controlled by keys on the keyboard, and the keys will change after a certain period of time. So on these eight columns, after some random time, the key that controls that base will change. And so it forces you to type a key to fire a missile at these invading aliens. But you can't just get used to one key because the key is going to change. So it forces you to look at the screen all the time rather than looking at the screen and then looking down to find the key and then looking up. Because if you do that, the invaders come fast enough that they'll get you pretty fast. It gets pretty frenetic pretty fast. It has different skill levels. According to the instructions, the skill level corresponds to the number of aliens in the wave, as well as a wider range of keys to press, it says, and a higher rate of attacking aliens, or typos, as they call it. I'm making air quotes. Can't really see the air quotes. So at the main screen, the option key controls that, the skill level. The select key controls the range of keys that you can use. So there's uppercase only, uppercase and lowercase, uppercase, lowercase, and symbols, and then everything but super fast. And the super fast is super fast. It's like crazy fast. I got interested in this program because my kids are in elementary school and they're going through these, this typing.com is their school's typing program. And they hate it. You know, it's a bunch of... I mean, it's, it's, it's not bad, actually, if you're learning to touch type. It's not super gamified like this is. I mean, you're not attacking aliens and stuff. You're, it's showing keys on the screen and it has a graphical image of what you're supposed to type. So it's it actually... Typing.com is, is a fine program to learn how to type. For kids, they're not super excited about it. And they actually like this game quite a bit. The disadvantage of this game is that it uses a lot of keys from all over the keyboard, whereas the typing.com puts like a focus on an individual key, like you're learning just the J and K keys, and then you branch out to like U and I that are near the J and K. But when it does come time to, for typing, both kids would rather play this than typing.com. So that's a, definitely a point in its favor. For myself, I actually type with a Dvorak keyboard. And so I thought this might not be a great game for me because I assumed it sort of, and it, it even it starts out in the sort of home row of the ASDF, and Dvorak is not laid out at all like that on the keyboard. But it, quickly enough, it, the keys get randomized on the bottom of the bases, and it's, I don't know what the frequency of all the letters are. If, they, if David Bueller, when he was coding this, had some way of you know, changing the frequency of the keys, you know, the non-special keys, the actual alpha keys. And so if Omnivore were working it at this point, I would maybe dive into the code and try to figure out what's going on. But my issue with the game reviews at this point is they're probably going to be pretty cursory, you know, a summary game review. I'm not going to go into depth. I haven't had a chance to work on Omnivore in quite a while. And I really just want to spend a lot of time getting that working before I then try to jump in and, you know, figure out the technical details about some of these games. So I know that's what I talked about last episode, that I would try to dive in and figure out how stuff is working. And, you know, maybe to some extent I'll do that a little bit, like I have an example for this game, but I don't think I'm going to be stepping through the code like I did with Quarks on last time, at least not for the moment. I have a lot of things that I want to do and want to get done with Omnivore before I really can jump into as much technical stuff as I want. Plus, I have the Jumpman level design contest to actually like get going, so I want to add more Jumpman stuff to Omnivore. So yeah, there's a bunch of things I've got to do. At any rate, I do want to talk about a technical thing about this game. So as you play, the aliens sort of march straight down the screen, you know, centered over one of the eight bases. But what they do is, as they go down, occasionally they'll, like, lurch forward a little bit. And as I was playing the first time, I didn't really understand how that might be coded up. You know, it's like, oh, okay, if they reach a certain place as the aliens are coming down, then, you know, you can make the thing move faster. But then what I realized was happening is he's using a display list. So the bulk of the screen, the stuff that's above the bases, you know, where the aliens are coming down, is in... Antic Mode 6, which is the 20-column by 24-row 
five color mode, but each character is a single color. But there are four places in the display list where it's actually Antic Mode 7, which is the 20 by 12 version of that five color character set mode. So what that means is at these four places on the screen, he's using character graphics to for the enemies, and he's getting this sort of pulsing quick movements down the screen for free. Because he's, cho- he's choosing characters to use for an individual alien. And then as he redefines the character set to show these aliens move down, he doesn't have to change his code as all, at all. But because the mode 7 lines have twice the number of hor- horizontal lines per character, it seems like the aliens are moving fast as they go through these, these four uh, bands on the screen. So it just shows how some of the advanced features of the Atari can get you some graphic stuff for free. You know, that would be quite a bit of code to actually try to do that if you're using even player missile graphics to figure out which line should be, which scan line should be duplicated as they scroll down. So that's a lot of bookkeeping in your code that you don't have to do with the Antic. It limits, of course, the, the sort of pulsating to certain bands on the screen. But, you know, I have to say, when I was playing it the first time, I never noticed that they all expanded in at these same bands. So quite a brilliant use of the Antic to get this effect. And this is an early game, too. And Wade tells the story, I don't want to give it all away because you need to listen to his podcast, but that he wrote this on the Atari 400 with the assembler editor cartridge. And as he said, talk about the most extreme degree of difficulty you could possibly imagine. So I found the game quite fun. It was, especially as you get going into the higher levels, it gets super frantic and it didn't take much to throw my timing off. It doesn't really help me with a dwarf keyboard, you know, to look down at the keys since my keys are labeled as a, as a QWERTY keyboard. You wouldn't tell that I type with dwarf just by looking at it. But I don't type like J and V a lot, and they're on the bottom row on the left hand. If you'd ask me where they are, I would say, yeah, I think they're one of those three keys, but I have to sometimes type. And so I'm not a great touch typist in, for a few keys on the Dvorak keyboard, if I'm thinking about it. If I'm just like flying typing, you know, fine. But, you know, you're not typing words, you're just typing letters. And so that, you don't have the muscle memory. I don't have the muscle memory to sort of remember where some of the common, you know, keystroke combos are. So there are definitely some spots on the keyboard that at this point out where I have difficulty. It's not only a good teaching tool, it's legitimately fun. It's a good game. So again, check out Wade's Review, Season 1, Episode 17 of the Inverse Tataski Podcast. And there are plenty of examples of people playing this on YouTube. And I'll include a link to a few of those as well. So I guess that'll do it for this episode. Hopefully I'll be back here in the near future. I seem to have some time during the day to edit podcast episodes now because I'm here at home with the kids when they do their homeschooling stuff. And it's not like I can't really do any real work during this time. Because there's, you know, it's constantly you know, managing to keep their attention focused on school sitting in front of a computer screen, which is like super difficult at this age, at any age, really. So maybe I'll be able to get these out regularly again. And for those of you playing the drinking game, have a shot right now. Thanks again to Steph Animal for letting me use her song Dragon Swirl off the album Top Gear for my new theme song. I'll include a link to all her stuff in the show notes. And until next time, don't let William Shatner sell you any Vic-20s.